Hi, everyone. Before we get into today's episode, we are thrilled to have Ambas as our sponsor for the episode. Hi, guys. My name is Virginia Velez Quinones. I am a University of Miami JFK um, internal medicine resident. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why I like Ambas because literally since the beginning of residency, I use it all the time. Even with like stroke CBA, it tells you like allow permissive hypertension for the first 24 hours if it's ischemic, you know, CT brain to make sure it's not hemorrhagic before you do anything, giving anticoagulation, things like that. Yeah. Do you find that like you still go on up to date to like double check or like you don't use UPC at all? I use it, but when when I want the like the latest, latest research, I'll go to up to date and like confirm it. But to be honest, 90%, 99% of the time, Amboss has the latest information and it's quick. And I have so many patients coming in all the time and I sometimes don't have time to sit down during work hours and like read the whole thing. And Coriam listeners can get a one month free trial using the code Coriam-Amboss. We'll link all that in the show notes for you. And with that, cue the intro. Welcome to Gray Matters with an A, where we unpack how medical management is rarely black or white. And we go on deep dives along the way. I'm Jason Freed, and I'm a hematologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And I'm Allie Trainer, and I'm a pulmonary and critical care fellow at the Harvard Combined Program at MGH and Beth Israel Deaconess. You know, Allie, ever since our first episode where you talked about how you found out your patient had died only because of an EHR alert, I've been thinking how spotty the feedback I get is. Totally. I mean, if I hadn't had that alert, I would have had no idea. So there's this case from a bunch of years back where I only found out what happened through random chance, and I've never been able to get it out of my mind. What happened? So this goes way back to when I was a resident, actually. I'm guessing your age, but I don't think you're even 40, so that really couldn't have been that long ago. I mean, I didn't have kids then, so it feels like a different life. (laughs) But anyways, this was a 72-year-old Vietnamese-speaking woman who gets admitted initially by one of my co-residents for severe gallstone pancreatitis. It's this long, complicated hospital stay lasting several weeks in the ICU for large parts of it. And during one of the many points where she had a fever, she has a chest x-ray, and there's an incidental finding of a lung nodule. That, of course, leads to a chest CT. Of course. Right. So the chest CT confirms a single 2.5-centimeter nodule. ID gets consulted and recommends three AFB smears, since she's from a TB endemic area. Those turn out negative, so we basically stop the workup at that point. Lots of other stuff happens, including getting a DVT and being started an anticoagulation for that. But eventually, after like 60 days, she's well enough that she's going to be discharged to rehab. And I am the discharging resident. 60 days? (laughs) I do not envy you having to prep that DC summary. And I was actually the eighth resident to take care of this patient because she'd been transferred multiple times in and out of the ICU. Anyways, kudos to my attending on that discharge day because the chest CT finding had fallen off the problem list in my massively copy-forwarded note. And this attending had a ritual prior to discharge of going through every imaging study from the whole admission to see if there were any incidental findings that needed follow-up. Yeah, serious kudos to your attending for catching that lung nodule. I'm seeing patients with lung nodules all the time in my pulmonary clinic, but this must come up a lot on the inpatient side with all of the CTs that people get. So I'm just wondering, how common is it to find incidental lung nodules? 
It is way more common than I even thought. I read a recent review in JAMA that said that lung nodules are seen in approximately 30% of chest CTs. 30%? Yeah, this works out to be that 1.6 million people in the U.S. each year are newly diagnosed with a lung nodule. That's a similar incidence to new cases of diabetes per year, which is insane because we talk all the time about initiating therapy for diabetes, but I can't say I know that much about lung nodules. Yeah, (laughs) I think that's probably true for most people who aren't pulmonologists. Exactly. So I turned to Dr. Anil Vashani, a pulmonologist who researches lung nodules at the University of Pennsylvania. And for our first deep dive, I asked him, what's his approach to workup of nodules and deciding on inpatient versus outpatient workup? He had some helpful rules of thumb based on size. Most nodules, somewhere between 80 and 90% of the nodules we identify incidentally, will be below eight millimeters in size, eight or smaller. And the, and, the, and the statistics are with us here, which is that if a nodule is eight millimeters or, or smaller, the likelihood of cancer will be 1% or less. So we, we can be quite confident that in a size range of eight millimeters or smaller, that um, surveillance imaging is the right strategy. Okay, so maybe this is why I didn't fully appreciate how common they are, because even if nodules are seen in 30% of chest CTs, most are going to be so small that they can be observed or don't need any follow-up at all. Eight millimeters or larger is where it gets, frankly, much more complicated. Um, Oftentimes, as we're evaluating nodules um, in that size range, we're using risk prediction tools like the Mayo Clinic risk model or or similar models to estimate the pretest probability of cancer in a nodule. It's a combination of sort of, you know, patient performance status, pretest probability, the location of the nodule and difficulty in biopsying it. Uh, all those factors sort of go into decision-making on whether it still makes sense to maybe do short-term surveillance or to do a PET scan or to do a biopsy. And then above 15 millimeters is where it starts to get even more complicated. Certainly as nodules get above 15 millimeters in size, we will usually uh, end up at least considering a PET scan immediately and a biopsy if a PET scan shows concerning findings. But, But there are still gray zones where surveillance could be appropriate Uh, where uh, a biopsy could be appropriate. Okay, so looking at the size of the nodule is helpful for pretest probability of cancer, but I think the question for your patient was inpatient or outpatient workup, right? So she has a two and a half centimeter nodule, so she definitely needs something to happen, but she's also being discharged today. So did you talk at all about inpatient or outpatient workup? Yeah, I mean, when deciding inpatient or outpatient, I agree, pretest probability of this being cancer is factor number one. But factor number two is, how likely is this to get done as an outpatient? So I spoke to Dr. Karen Oshida, a geriatrician at Cornell, about something she and her team calls fast-forward rounds, which can be used to help decide how challenging it will be for something to happen as an outpatient. The idea was born out of how we all get into care transitions, because you see a transition go wrong. And it frustrates you because we we spend all this time and energy in the hospital trying to figure out what's what's going on with people and and we all go into medicine because we want to fix it and then you help someone and you get them better and then the readmission is like a total failure like you just feel like ah oh, all our work was for not um and so i think dr lofaso came up with this concept of well if we on rounds like talked about like fast forwarding in time to when this person is home what would they need what follow-up would they need, then maybe we could help. It was a way of thinking. Maybe we could help prevent those readmissions. It seems like fast-forward rounds isn't just about preventing readmissions, right? It's also about thinking through what's going to be best for their patient and really setting them up for success. Right. Why I really appreciate fast-forward rounds is that it allows me to pause, 
and anticipate the probability of my plan actually happening. And of course, by thinking through it, I can more readily recognize what's likely to be a difficult plan and then allows me to adjust that plan if needed to make a higher fidelity version. Yeah, I love this idea of fast forward rounds. So let's take a stab at this on your incidental lung nodule finding because, you know, I do love the lungs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. So you're the discharging clinician. And then fast forward, you put yourself in the shoes of the PCP at that first post-discharge clinic visit. What do you need to do with that appointment? Okay, yeah. So let me try and think through this. So I'm the PCP. Do I get a PET scan? Do I go straight to a biopsy? And who do I refer them to? Is it pulmonary, interventional pulmonary, thoracic surgery, interventional radiology? And okay, then so let's say she does need a biopsy. What am I supposed to do with her anticoagulation? Does she need bridging for the DVT that she had in the hospital? And if she does, how do I operationalize this with a non-English speaking older adult? Does she have someone who can help her with the anoxaparin injections? I mean, gosh, this is hard. There are so many moving parts that are coming up that need to all fall into place for this to happen as an outpatient. Yes, this is why I'm such a big fan of fast-forward rounds. We get so excited about clinical reasoning when we're admitting patients, but we think of discharges as just checking some logistical boxes. But the reality is that discharging is some of the most complex clinical reasoning we do in the entire hospitalization, because it requires incorporating not just medical knowledge, but also systems-based practice, communication with patients, other providers. It's like all six ACGME competencies rolled into one. Yeah, I'm definitely guilty of just writing as a knee-jerk reflex, oh, follow-up pulmonary nodule as an outpatient. But when we just did the fast-forward rounds, it seems like she has a high-risk nodule, and this is not a foolproof discharge plan because there are so many things that can fall through the cracks. So maybe this is something that we should do as an inpatient. I hear you. But I will say, in speaking to Dr. Vashani, he actually argued that most incidental nodules are better evaluated in the outpatient setting. That's because where you're, you're really able to have that multidisciplinary conversation that we oftentimes do in our group, which is, you know, we will oftentimes present lung nodules at tumor boards or what we now have nodule boards and discuss them with our colleagues from thoracic surgery and interventional radiology and oncology and radiation oncology to make sure we've aligned on what the differential is, what the appropriate diagnostic procedure should be, what the treatments are that could be offered afterward. He also brought up a surprising observation on the complications of doing biopsies inpatient as opposed to outpatient. Now, there's a lot of sort of confounders here that I haven't sorted out yet, right? But essentially, that the risk of pneumothorax, the risk of hemorrhage, uh, those are all greater when the when a diagnostic procedure is done on the inpatient setting. Whoa, that's really surprising to me, especially since it's usually the same procedural as doing it as an inpatient or as an outpatient. Part of that is just because probably the patients are obviously sicker, and that's why in the, in the hospital, so they're at greater risk. But there is something to this, right, that goes beyond that, which is this idea that I don't, I don't really like doing a biopsy on an inpatient if whatever reason they're in the hospital or whatever their sort of current medical sort of milieu is raises a risk of a complication. So I'm still very much a believer in these patients should make it out of the hospital. They should recuperate for a few days. They should, you know, ideally get back to a place of optimal health before we then put them through an invasive procedure. So I'm still in most settings not really... Uh, enthusiastic about an, about an inpatient workup when I can transition them safely to an outpatient center. This tells me if I'm going to do this inpatient, it should be towards the end of the hospitalization when other acute things have resolved. But then if we try to defer it to the outpatient setting, we're always at risk that the nodule will get lost to follow up. So Dr. Fashani actually tried out an intervention for that. I hired a nurse practitioner for a year who essentially spent her entire time reviewing inpatients and identify any incidental findings on in their chest CT scans. And she would then 
prior to discharge, discuss those findings with the patient, send a, a fax or note uh, to the primary care provider, arrange for their next study, whatever there was a CT or an ultrasound or whatever was needed as an outpatient. Um, and it worked, right? We were able to show that we could really improve our follow-up rate from about 50% to about 90%. But it was very expensive to do, as you can imagine. Like the health system doesn't want to have to pay you know, uh, a nurse practitioner for essentially sort of a non-billable service. And it just became not sustainable. We were able to show a pretty good outcome, but we couldn't quite come up with the right financial model to support work like that. Wow, those are staggering numbers. And now I'm deeply concerned that without this dedicated nurse practitioner, half of nodules could be lost to follow-up. I know, right? But it does fit with my anecdotal experience. And specifically with this patient, it's not so straightforward for outpatient workup. She had a DVT less than a month ago, so I got to figure out if she needs bridging and then figure out who I'm referring to for biopsy. It may make sense to do it in the inpatient setting. And we certainly use anticoagulation, um, you know, non-English speaking is also a big problem, right? Getting patients to their appointments with appropriate interpreters in place is certainly something that is a barrier and that can sometimes influence decisions on when to work up uh, these findings. You know, poor social support, all those sorts of concerns around whether someone is more likely to then get lost to follow up as an outpatient all do go into our sort of consideration. I kind of feel validated hearing that because we constantly hear this line, oh, that's not the reason they're hospitalized, so it should be deferred to outpatient. Yeah, and is that even a fair rule of thumb? Like you're saying, you know, especially since we're seeing it's way more complicated than that. It's not even just, can we get an interpreter to the appointment, but can we get the patient to the appointment? Usually, more often, I'm on the receiving end of that, where I'm the house call doctor, or I'm the outpatient doctor. And certainly for the house call patients, I'm like, I look at a discharge summary and there's, you know, four or five follow-up appointments made. And in the era before telemedicine, it was like, really like, who did you, did you think that this person who is homebound, who we see at home and they never leave their home, they're not really going to get to all these things. And now we have to prioritize with them, like what's actually, what matters? What are we asking these people to do, you know, like, what are we physically asking them to do? And do they understand that themselves? Gosh, I feel like I'm getting whiplash here. You know, we can make a good case for outpatient or inpatient workup for a lung nodule that's greater than 15 millimeters. But sounds like reasons to consider to this as an outpatient, especially for lung nodules, is that there can be a lot more support outpatient with these tumor boards. And the procedures might be less risky because people are less sick. But on the other hand, as an inpatient, you're much more likely to make sure the biopsy happens, which is especially important when you have people with certain social determinants of health that make it really hard for them to follow up as an outpatient, like being non-English speaking or having poor social supports or being housebound. So what did you do for this patient? We ultimately decided to defer this to outpatient. And I have to admit, it was a weekend discharge after I had just met the patient. They're going to a skilled nursing facility. They need an interpreter. And I'll be honest, I don't know if I hit everything in our pre-discharge communication after a 60-day hospitalization. I don't actually remember whether we talked about the nodule. Realistically, Jason, all of that would have been impossible regardless of what day of the week it was. But I will say that I wrote a heck of a discharge summary. I know because I've looked back at it. I'm not surprised. <laughs> it did list every possible transitional issue, of which there were several. This lung finding that we spent so long talking about was just one of them. 
So Jason, I'll be honest, reflecting back, I'm certain I've discharged patients and again, just written, oh, transitional issue, pulmonary nodule needs to be followed up as an outpatient, feeling like I've done what I need to do. But the more we talk through this, I'm starting to question that practice, especially in this case. I mean, wasn't your patient's nodule in the high risk category? It was greater than 15 millimeters, right? Right. It was 25 millimeters. And okay, I'm just plugging this into the Mayo Clinic risk prediction model online. And Gosh, for a former smoker, which she was, 72 years old, with an upper lobe solitary lung nodule of 25 millimeters, it's a 68% probability it's cancer, 86% if it's speculated. I have to say, if I knew those numbers, I might not have chosen to do this as an outpatient. Yeah, those numbers are so striking because that might also actually change how I think about this as a pulmonary consultant. If the risk of cancer is that high, we need to make sure that this biopsy happens. Right, like... Even if there's a 10% chance of this not happening outpatient, that is way too high risk. And we heard 50% of lung nodules are lost to follow-up. And of course, in hindsight, we're saying maybe you should have kept her inpatient. And honestly, I, I do wonder about that, but we'll never know for certain if that was better because we also just heard that there can be more risks with inpatient biopsies. Yeah, I got to be honest, I, I did feel a little relieved when I heard Dr. Fashani frequently discharges patients for follow-up of outpatient of their lung nodule. I think that this is perfectly appropriate. I think the key risk, though, as you've pointed out in this case and in others, is that we lose track of incidental finding quite frequently on the inpatient setting. So I guess, how do we not lose track of it? We don't want to miss a resectable cancer that then metastasizes. For our second deep dive, I asked our experts, what can we do to optimize the transition of care? Maybe we can start with what seems like the low-hanging fruit of the discharge summary, since everyone's required to write one. One study found that only 23% of patients requiring follow-up per Fleischner Society guidelines for lung nodules had the nodule listed on their discharge summary. That's Dr. Corinne Rhodes, who's Associate Medical Director of Quality for the Primary Care Service Line at Penn Medicine. Okay, so it sounds like step one is just making sure that that incidentaloma actually makes it into the discharge summary. But mention of the nodule in the heading of the radiology report, explicit recommendation for follow-up for, from the radiologist and the use of a medical discharging service were associated with inclusion in the summary. I have no data to say this, but I, I will say as a PCP that within the discharge summary itself, again, where you place it and how you call attention to it, again, can be helpful. This makes a lot of sense. So where the radiologist puts it in their report and where we list it in our discharge summary can make a difference in terms of people seeing it. Yeah, I have to say, when I was a resident, I was so meticulous about documenting transitional issues in my discharge summary because, again, I felt like if I did that, I was absolved of responsibility. You know, I've done my part. Yeah, I was the same way. It's in the discharge summary. My job is done. But as I reflect now, the discharge summary is not closed loop. But of course, closed loop communication with a phone call, it's time intensive for the discharging doctor and the primary care provider and probably impractical to do for every incidental finding. So I asked Dr. Oshida about an alternative form of closed-up communication, email. It's still one way. Unless the person writes you back or engages with you, you don't really know what was received and was it received in this, the way you wanted it to be received. So it was like a 2009 study, and they just used email because they had non-urgent findings. They didn't seem like it necessitated a phone call. So they just send an email alert to the PCP or maybe the ordering physician. Then they could see if they were viewed. And like one in five times, like 20% of the time, it wasn't even viewed. So it's not two-way enough. Like it's just kind of a, you know, like a dumping. 
You know, 2009 is a long time ago in technology. Right. In 2009, I had a BlackBerry. Yeah. And I'm fairly certain I had a flip phone. So I definitely wasn't checking email on my phone. But I'm sure now people are looking at their email a lot more often than that. I also know that even with that, I still miss emails sometimes. So it's not a perfect closed loop system. Right. I miss emails too sometimes. But when people actually do respond to your email or to your phone call, there's a benefit beyond just information transfer. When we email or talk on the phone about a shared patient, we have an opportunity to discuss what the fast forward is going to look like. And when I'm the outpatient provider who's receiving the handoff, I really like that I can ask questions. And oftentimes together, we can make a higher fidelity transition plan because of that interaction. You could try and create some redundancy in the system, right? Make appointments, make CAT scan appointments, you know, book them also for a pulmonologist. You know, you, you could try and create a little bit of redundancy that somewhere someone's going to make sure that, that, that one of these appointments gets met and that the follow-up happens. But he also acknowledges that these won't completely eliminate the risk of something important being lost. I think the problem is that we do a terrible job, though, of closing the loop, I guess is what I'm trying to say, which is that even as an outpatient provider, if I order a CAT scan for a patient with a lung nodule at an outpatient visit for their next outpatient visit and they don't show, I have very little safety net around that, right? Beyond the fact that they're going to fall off my schedule, their CAT scan's going to get sort of closed because they were a no-show. No one's going to tell me unless I go looking for their no-show visit. Certainly radiology doesn't, at least at our institution, has no sort of safety net for getting people back if they've no-showed for visits. People just drop off into the ether. This is one of my biggest fears in outpatient pulmonary clinic. I have no good way of knowing if these things are getting lost. And honestly, it could be happening right now and I would have no idea. I feel like it could be happening to me too. And to Dr. Fashani's point on creating redundancy, another way to create a safety net is to educate our patients and their loved ones. And so even if I can't pull up a CAT scan, I will literally take a piece of white paper and draw two lungs, like literally a circles and say, here's a dot. This is what you have in your lung and it shouldn't be there. Give them some sort of visual to try and remember that there is a real abnormality that we want to keep track of. And then I try and lay context, which is the likelihood of cancer here is going to be low. It's one out of 100. It's 10 out of 100. It's 50 out of 100, whatever the number is. And that because, you know, it's this low or because it's high enough that we really, really want to make sure that we you know, get uh, get an evaluation done in this time frame. But I do try and give them a visual. And if I, if I do it on a piece of paper, I actually give them the piece of paper and say, take this home and keep it with you if you need to remind yourself why we're doing it. A plus to the power of visuals in patient education. <laughs> yeah, I'm all about patient education too. But sometimes what we tell the patient is not what the patient actually hears. And sometimes we both know when there's so much going on, it's just hard to take in too much information, right? If someone is very sick due to another reason and, you know, they're in the hospital, I think you said 60 days, they might be so sick that this is just not pertinent to work up right now. We're not sure how this person's going to recover. And thinking about our patients who are recovering, there's so much information you take in. Can you really expect the patient to be their own advocate when there's so much going on that they might truly not understand what is a nodule? What is even that word nodule versus mass? It has different interpretations, how much we choose to to reveal to the patient. So what I'm taking away from deep dive too is that we often oversimplify these decisions about inpatient versus outpatient workup into two buckets. 
on the one hand, toss it in the DC summary and hope for the best, and on the other, deal with it as an inpatient. Yeah, there's the minimalist and maximalist approach. But it sounds like, if I can summarize here, there are many gray layers in between. <laughs> are you trying to get our show title into every episode? It's been working so far. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, it's not just DC summary or inpatient workup. There is looping in the PCP, involving a specialized service to oversee the workup, doing teachback with your patients. And all of these things take different amounts of time and have different degrees of reliability. Yeah, this is where having a risk-adapted approach is helpful. Something with a 68% risk of being cancer, it needs all the layers of redundancy to avoid a Swiss cheese situation. Yeah, agreed. So getting back to your case, I feel like there's been so much buildup, so something must have happened with this lung nodule, right? Yeah, I never would have known. But about nine months after all this, I was a Hemonc fellow, and I was just incidentally (laughs) at Lung Tumor Board, and one of the many cases discussed that day was a name that sounded really familiar. And I thought, gosh, that, that can't be the same person. But then they pulled up the chest CT from nine months earlier and the current one, which now showed a 10-centimeter lung mass and an MRI with two brain metastases. Oh, man, I was worried that that was where you were going with this, but that's so awful. I know. And of course, I felt horrible and immediately started to try and figure out what happened. So what'd you find out? Long story short, the patient went to rehab for about a month and made a great recovery and was discharged back home. And when she saw her PCP for the first time after that, The PCP had the discharge summary from the rehab, but didn't have the discharge summary that I wrote from the hospitalization. And the patient didn't mention the incidental finding. And I can't blame them, given everything else that was going on at the time. It definitely wasn't their priority. That's horrible. I mean, I could so see how this could happen. But wait, didn't you say she smoked cigarettes in the past? So shouldn't she have been getting CTs for lung cancer screening anyway? So this was before chest CT screening for lung cancer had become more common. And so the patient seemingly didn't have any other reason to get any more chest CTs. So the nodule, which turned out to be non-small cell lung cancer, grew, metastasized, and she actually presented due to complications related to the brain metastases. And after that tumor board, she ended up opting for comfort care, and she passed away not too long after that diagnosis. (sighs) That's so awful. But Jason, I think honestly, this is something that could have happened to any of us. I know we've talked about regrets in the past. I'm curious, what has come up for you in thinking back on this case? I have a lot of reflections and lessons from this case. But one thing is whenever you look back on a case with a bad outcome, you can ask, was this because I made a bad decision? Or was it a good decision that just happened to have a bad outcome this time? But I think with this case, knowing what I know now about how high risk a 25 millimeter nodule is, this was a bad decision. And if there was another case like this tomorrow, it would be a bad decision for me to discharge them. Yeah, that's so tough. I mean, I I just don't know if it was the wrong decision. You know, maybe if she had had more safety nets, she would have followed up. But who really knows? And knowing you, Jason, I'm sure you took this all to heart. So how has this affected how you practice? I feel like I've gone through some stages of grief after this. I swung from minimalist, just dump it all in the discharge summary, to maximalist, work up every incidental finding inpatient. But the reality was that neither approach was right for every patient and problem. And it was only with time that I was able to adopt a risk-adapted approach. So what does this risk-adapted approach actually look like when you're on the bone marrow transplant service? Well, so I have adopted that pre-discharge ritual that my attending did. And I look through all the imaging and tests that are pending prior to discharge. And we do fast-forward rounds as a team. We talk out loud about how we're going to make sure that things happen. So frequently, I'll ask my team, So what are you going to do about that pending SPEP? And they'll often say, Jason, aren't you going to get that result 
in your results queue as an attending. And that's a chance for me to clarify some blind spots in the system that lab tests are actually not going to be pushed to me after discharge. And then that's how we come up with a system to keep track of it, or we decide on who we're going to hand off responsibility to. That's so helpful because I think the way that I've been doing this is really just a fear-based model where I just remember things that would keep me up at night if they got missed, but that is just not productive or effective. So I'm going to try to do this risk-adapted approach and be more systematic about following things that might get lost. Okay. So if we could rewind to young Jason, who maybe would have done fast-forward rounds, what would you have done differently? Besides using a risk calculator to see how risky this nodule is, I'd tell him to fast forward and see if this follow-up plan seems likely to happen. And of course, in this case, there's a million reasons it could have gone wrong, and it did. But if the patient really didn't want to prolong their hospitalization to get the biopsy, I would have used a system to keep track of this high-risk transitional issue. So one thing I do now is to future send myself an email set to come back to me in the amount of time where I know the results will be back or I know that something will be doable so I don't have to be checking multiple times. I love that idea and definitely something I'm going to try to do going forward. But it can still be tough not to lose track of things. And I know that you and I both really want to improve on this. So I would love to ask our listeners if they could share with us ways that they follow up transitional issues to make sure that these important aspects of patient care don't get lost. Allie, before I go on another tangent, (laughs) maybe this is a good place to summarize our deep dives from this case. All right. So in our first deep dive, we talked about how to approach an incidentally found lung nodule for an inpatient. If the nodule is eight millimeters or above, then think about plugging it into a prediction tool like the Mayo Clinic risk model to help you take a risk-adapted approach to if the workup needs to happen inpatient or outpatient. The case for outpatient workup being that you have nodule or tumor boards and the biopsy risk might be less. But on the other hand, if it's a higher risk nodule and you have a patient with certain social determinants of health that make them more likely to get lost to follow up, then maybe you should be working them up as an inpatient. And for our second deep dive, we talked about if you do decide to defer something to outpatient, depending on how risky it is, we have to think about how to create as many layers of redundancy as possible. These layers range from patient education, like drawing the lung nodule, to where you put the transitional issues in the discharge summary, and then closed loop communication with outpatient providers. But humbly, even when we do our very best, some things do still fall through the cracks. This case left me thinking. We spend so much time in medicine thinking about how we say hello, but not how we say goodbye. And I really believe that discharging requires some of the most complex and important clinical reasoning we'll do for the entire hospitalization. And I'm hoping that this episode might inspire people to think about how they say goodbye. Yeah. And I have to say for our listeners, there were so many other places we wanted to take this episode and you should have heard us practicing with all the things we deliberated, including, and hopefully we will cover some of these in the future, but we would really love to hear from you all about challenges or areas where things get lost that have come up for you when taking a risk adapted approach and doing fast forward rounds on your patients. And that's a wrap for today. But we also love going through other cases. So if you have a case that you want to bring to Gray Matters, please let us know. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And if you do have a case you'd like to bring on air, please email us at hello at coreampodcast.com. Thank you to Doc Bhatia for the audio editing. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.